Well, Brussels sprouts have never been a favorite vegetable of mine. They're kind of cute, and they look like little cabbages. Um, and if they were bigger and they would surround themselves with corned beef and potatoes and carrots, then I think I would feel better about them, but they're not. They're tiny, and they have a little bitter bite, and it really never has appealed to me. So you can imagine my surprise when Liz and I were on vacation uh, years ago. We were dining at a Thai restaurant, and I asked our waitress what she would recommend that we have from the menu, and she said, Brussels sprouts. And I suspect that the look on my face um, may have hinted at a bit of skepticism, uh, to which she said, trust me, they're great. Never encountered a great Brussels sprout in 40 plus years of life at that time, but I said, okay, I will trust you. And she brought them out and she was right. They were great. They were amazing. And we have since returned to that same restaurant on vacation many times in order to order the Brussels sprouts. But this December, our story with Brussels sprouts took an unwelcome and sad turn. <laughs> we ordered them again. And as we dug in voraciously, because we were hungry and had traveled all day, that was a mistake. Because mixed in with those Brussels sprouts, I did mention this was a Thai restaurant, mixed in with those Brussels sprouts, um, hardly visible but clearly present, were little bits, tiny bits, of what appeared to be some sort of pepper. Not black pepper, little red things. I think it was a volcanic pepper or a hell pepper, <laughs> because it felt to me, eating those Brussels sprouts, what it might feel like if you were eating spoonfuls of lava or chewing on hot coals. My entire face was afire. This, these Brussels sprouts were not warm. They were not spicy. They were ablaze. And so was my face. Those tiny little peppers changed the whole constitution and my whole experience with that dish. In our text this morning, Jesus makes reference to two ingredients, two items that, like these peppers, are small to the point of being almost imperceptible, but like those peppers, turn out to be significant, turn out to be completely influential. We are dealing today with the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast and what they tell us about the kingdom of God. You can find this parable in the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel. If you'd like to turn there, Luke chapter 13, we'll be reading verses 18 to 20 here. Luke 13, 18, 20. Before we get there, let me, let me give you a little bit of background on this parable. It is a double parable, and like uh, the parables we have studied so far in our series on parables, 
Jesus uses here what would be familiar to his hearers in order to illuminate what was unfamiliar to them. And in this case, what was unfamiliar to them was information about the kingdom of God. So Jesus takes some common items that they would know about and relates them to the kingdom of God. So this double parable in that way is like all the parables where comparisons are made to illustrate spiritual truth. This double parable today uh, before us, however, is unlike the other ones that we have studied because when we studied the parable of the sower, for instance, um, we could readily identify the fact that there are four characters here, all who respond differently to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. And we could say, which one might I be? Am I a hardened hearer, or am I a shallow hearer, or am I a distracted hearer, or am I somebody who actually does take in the Word of God? We could see ourselves in the parable, in other words, because the parable has characters. And then in that uh, parable of the rich fool, it was very similar. There's characters involved here, and we understand Jesus' warning to us, right, that we have to be careful and be on guard against all kinds of greed, and who's in there but some guy who thinks he has life in his hands and life under his control. And he's a greedy man. And he, and he pairs down his barns to build bigger barns to put in more of his produce. And he does all this without thought of God. And God calls him a fool. And we can relate to that character a little bit because at times we've been greedy. At times we, we have pursued the wrong things. At times we have taken our eyes off of God. Um, we know what it's like, for instance, to be the fool. Or we may think we know the fool, or um, maybe we're even playing the fool now. And so that parable would speak to us. Those characters jump right out. But here in this one, there are no characters at all. There's a mustard seed and there's some yeast. No person or persons for us to relate to. Just two common items held up by Jesus to help us understand a little bit more about the kingdom of God. Now before that, before we get into this though, when Jesus says, the kingdom of God, we need to know what he means by that. He's talking about the rule and the reign of God. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here, he's talking about what it's like when God is ruling, what it's like when God is reigning. These are the results you can expect when God is in charge. So our text this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 20. What precedes it is the context. Jesus has healed a woman. And I would love to talk more about, about that. And as I put this message together, I started there with that, that story of the healing. And it's such an awesome story. But what I realized was I had crafted two sermons. And I, I know you're very patient people, and I appreciate that. But I don't think you want to listen to two sermons. So we'll just save that one for another time. Suffice it to say this. Jesus has just gone to the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath and healed a woman who was crippled with a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and she couldn't stand up. She could not straighten herself. We would say, oh, she had osteoporosis. The Bible gives us a different diagnosis. It says that she was crippled with a disabling spirit, which means that the forces of evil were at work in her life. Forces of oppression were her true affliction. And Jesus called her forth and he said to her, woman, you are set free which is beautiful language, but it's even better in the King James. Woman, thou art loosed. Thou art loosed. Because see, this is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to do battle with the forces of darkness. Jesus has come forward to, to loose people from the chains and the bondage that they were experiencing. So right, that is the context in which we begin to read. 
the synagogue ruler wasn't happy about this. See, now I'm starting to preach the sermon, so I'll have to be careful. So you'll have to go back and, and read it, but suffice it to say, what has just happened in front of all these people is that they have seen an example of what the kingdom of God is like, liberating, it's freeing, it's healing, and they have seen an example of what the kingdom of God is not like, which is oppressive and restrictive, uh, something that would choke the life out of a person. You've got to go read that yourself. We've got to get on with this. 13, verses 18 to 20. He said, therefore, this is Jesus talking, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So we have here the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. They're two parables, but they make the same basic point. Both of them reference something small, something hidden, something that over time grows and expands outward, and something that yields uh, observable external results. Those, those will be our four points working through this parable. The first is this, the kingdom of God starts small. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like something that starts out very small, like those peppers, right? Almost indiscernible, like a tiny seed or a trivial amount of yeast. The Bible tells us that a little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump, just a pinch. In fact, the rule and the reign of God that Jesus came to initiate did begin on earth with something small. I think you probably know the story. You find it in John chapter 1. You find it in Luke chapter 2. It began quite quietly and unassumingly in human terms, very humbly, in the form of a nondescript child born in a little place called Bethlehem cradled in a manger. The kingdom did begin small, but that baby grew to be a man and eventually became a teacher. He amassed a following, although many of them followed him just because they personally benefited from his miracles, and most, uh, all of them abandoned him when he, he was arrested and when it was time for him to be crucified. And though there was no guilt found in him, Jesus was crucified anyway, and he left his disciples, 11 of his best friends, and many followers behind. And that, the authorities thought, would be the end of Jesus. And that would be the end of the Jesus movement. If we just can strike the shepherd, all these sheep will scatter, and it'll be all over. And actually, for a little while after his death, that's what it looked like, what was going to happen. You remember those stories of the disciples, right? After Jesus is killed, they don't know what to do with themselves. They kind of lock themselves in a room. They're in hiding, the Bible says, for fear of the Jews. So it does look like this thing is going nowhere. The disciples are petrified and paralyzed with fear. But not too long after that, right, we understand that the grave could not hold Jesus, that he was resurrected from the dead. And having been resurrected from the dead, he appeared to his friends in these resurrection accounts are some of the coolest scripture you'll ever read together, huddled down, worried in a locked room, and all of a sudden, boom, there's Jesus. I love that kind of stuff. If that doesn't gender faith, I don't know what would. All of a sudden, these frightened disciples become emboldened. Wait a minute, Jesus isn't dead. 
Jesus is alive. All of a sudden, some of the stuff that he was telling them about this is starting to come true. And they go, wait a minute. Remember, he said that. You remember he said that. All of a sudden, there's this thing bubbling up inside of these guys. And they're starting to think, wait a minute, this is real. Wait a minute, this is, this is big. And Jesus stayed on the earth and he ministered for 40 days. And, and, and he, he presented himself not just to these disciples, but to, to multitudes of people. And faith is beginning to grow. And then he's ascended into heaven like he said he would. And we think, well, that must be the end of this whole Jesus thing. And he's gone. No. He said, it's to your advantage that I go. He says in John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't you worry about it. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come back. I will get you. Don't you worry about that. But while I'm gone, I'm going to send you something even better. I'm going to send you the helper. I'm going to send you the counselor. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit of God descended on the church, you read about it in Acts chapter 2, it was just amazing. All of a sudden, these men who were so scared are out in the streets and they're preaching and they're teaching and they're proclaiming Jesus and they're being persecuted for it. And they're saying, I don't care if you need to beat us, beat us. But we have to tell the truth of Jesus. And this Jesus thing that started so small is now beginning to gain momentum. And the church becomes persecuted and everybody thinks, oh, this is horrible. And as a result of the persecution, everybody goes away to their own place. And as a result of that, everybody going to their own place. People are evangelized all over the world and it begins to spread and spread and spread. This message of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, has not ceased to be preached since the day it happened. This thing that started so small has grown so big. And I have to stop here because now I'm into my third point and I don't want to skip number two. We'll leave it right there. The kingdom of God starts small. The kingdom of God is like something that is hidden, we see in these parables. It's, it's not initially apparent. If that seed's going to be effective, if that seed's going to grow to be a tree, it has to spend some time germinating. It has to spend some time under the soil. If that yeast is going to be effective, if that yeast is going to infiltrate and permeate that whole lump of dough, it has to be mixed in with the flour and the other ingredients, and it becomes indistinguishable. You can't see it in there. It's an ingredient. It's in there, but you can't see it, right? You can't see the seed at work. You can't see the yeast at work. Not noticeable. That's how the kingdom of God works sometimes, very mysteriously. And when you and I think of kingdoms... We, we tend to think of things that we can see or things that we can observe, things that we can experience. We tend to think of geographical uh, locations of kingdoms or political entities as being kingdoms. That's what Jesus' disciples thought Jesus was going to bring in. That's why they were jockeying for the best seats, right? You remember that? That's what they thought was going to happen. That's why they were lobbying Jesus. Or if you're James and John, get your mom to go do it. That's another great sermon. What do they want? We want, the, we want the best cabinet seats in the government that you're going to establish, Jesus. Because we think you're going to come here and overthrow these Romans and reestablish the rule uh, and the throne of David. And we want to be there right with you governing this kingdom. A lot of the Jews in Jesus' day thought that the Messiah was going to usher in a literal physical kingdom. In Luke 17, the Pharisees asked the Lord when the kingdom of God would come. And he answers them. He says, the kingdom of God's not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
Some translations say the kingdom of God is in you. Jesus is saying, look, it's not coming with all these great big signs. You're not going to see it. You're not going to be able to point to it. Why? Because it's, it's here. Here it's around you and it's in you and you don't even know it. Because the rule and the reign of God is imperceptible at times. Like the seeds that grow beneath the soil and the yeast that changes the bread. So God is at work in our midst. Whether you recognize it or not. And God is at work in you, and that's a promise from the book of Ephesians, right? For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God is at work in you because you are his workmanship. Now if we might pause here for just a moment to make a personal application, I think it would be this. Remember, as the Apostle Paul reminded the Philippian believers in Philippians 2 verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember that God's at work in you, and he's doing it for his good pleasure. The psalmist, Psalm 121, verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That God doesn't take a break. God doesn't, God doesn't take, a, take a nap. God doesn't stop looking over you. God doesn't stop working on your heart and on your mind. If you belong to him, he is on it 24-7 your advocate, your helper, working in you, working on you, and conforming you to the image of his son. His desire is to make you more like his son. Make you more like Jesus. At times it might feel like God isn't doing anything. Has anybody had that experience in life where we wonder if somehow we've hit the pause button? Where is the Lord? There's nothing really miraculous or dynamic or awesome going on and we might get a little discouraged by that i don't think the lord is is doing anything and, and some people say I, i've had people say to me i think the lord's forgot me i think theologically we all know better than that but there but experientially it feels that way sometimes and that's why we have to remember what this is teaching what paul was trying to get across to the philippians god is at work and there's a promise in there further to the Philippians, right? That he who began a good work in you will what? Do you remember how to fill that in? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, or he will complete it. So don't underestimate what God is doing, what God is capable of doing uh, in your life. And similarly, don't underestimate what the kingdom of God is doing or is capable of doing in others. Just because you don't see God at work in a person doesn't mean that he's not there working beneath the surface of what is observable. That right there uh, is reason for us to persevere in prayer for our lost friends and family members. Uh, that is why we must keep standing in the gap for the people that we care about who don't seem to care about God. We think that we're a little flighty, a little nutty, or a little too holy, who might even make fun of us, but we have to keep standing in the gap for them. We have to keep interceding for them. We have to persist in interceding for God to be glorified in the circumstances in our lives that frustrate us or upset us or grieve us. And we must believe while we're doing this that he hears you. He answers prayer and he is at work. So first, the kingdom of God starts small, somewhat unassuming. Second, it's something hard to see. Third, the kingdom of God grows. 
It's the nature of the rule and reign of God to grow, to expand outward. That's part of what Paul was saying when he wrote to the Colossians. He used a different metaphor, but it's the same kind of idea when he said about the gospel that it was bearing fruit. Because this is what the gospel always does. You read that in the first chapter of Colossians. The gospel bears fruit. The gospel grows. The involvement of God, the presence of God, the kingship of God in our lives brings transformation and growth. The Bible says that we are ever changing from glory to glory. The Bible says that we are not to remain babes in, faith, in the faith. And that's something that sort of goes against a popular notion out there these days, that what it means to be saved is to raise your hand or repeat a few words, to say something after somebody else, to call it good, to get your fire insurance and walk away. And that is not at all what the Scripture is talking about, that once we make a decision for Jesus, we are considered a babe in Christ. That's where we all begin as babes. But the, th the thing is, and the writer of the Hebrews got after him for a little bit, by now you should be teachers, not babies. What's stopping you from growing? In Ephesians, Paul says it is his desire that we should mature and that we should all grow up in him. Grow up in him. That is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So it's the nature of the kingdom of God to grow in us, and that raises a question, right? Are we, by His grace at work in us, growing in holiness? Are we expanding ourselves outward? Is our life, because of the Spirit of God in us, increasingly more about loving God and loving others and less about loving ourselves? Is it more about His kingdom and less about our own? You see, it's the nature of the kingdom of God to grow in us and to grow in the world. We are in a unique position reading these parables, if you think about it, because they were spoken when it was not clear at all what, if anything, would become of this Jesus and the people who were following him, or his message, or his movement. Nobody knew that. When Jesus gave this indication that it's going to be growing and it's going to be expanding, it didn't even necessarily look like that was going to be the case. He was teaching in the synagogue something that you think would be just a normal, nice thing to do. There were people sitting in that synagogue looking for a reason to accuse him, to move him out of the way. That's the environment in which Jesus is making this bold proclamation. Don't worry, the kingdom of God is going forward. Don't worry, the kingdom of God is going to blossom. It's going to bloom. We're in a unique position. Those people couldn't see that. But you know what? You and I, we've seen this partially fulfilled at least. Because the message of Jesus didn't just make its way through the neighborhoods of Nazareth or through that town or through the region. It has made its way through the entire world. And very few places today, relatively speaking at least, have not been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. And in fact, this is one of the reasons that we support Wycliffe Associates in their work in Bible translation, right? So that those who haven't heard the word can hear the word. So that we can be part of that, moving the word into these places. Most people have had some subjection to the gospel. And beyond that, you understand Christianity is firmly established globally. You might wonder about it living in this country, how established it is. But Christianity globally is firmly established. The number of people that it, it has reached in 2,000 years since Jesus is astronomical. It's incalculable. The gospel is still spreading. You understand that, right, brothers and sisters? 
The gospel is still spreading. People are still being brought into the kingdom. People today are being saved. The kingdom of God grows. So let's not be discouraged. Let's not just look around and, 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 and be in despair. Christianity remains the largest religion in the world by population. And do you know this? Over 2 billion people this morning who are taking in air profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. Over 2 billion people in this world profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you one simple question which would be, well, it's easy to ask. It's hard to do. But what would it look like if every one of those professing Christians were to lead just one more person to Jesus? Fourth observation from these parables is that the kingdom of God yields observable external results. What begins small and internally and invisibly expands outward. It grows into something obvious, something observable externally. That is, the gospel is an inward change that produces an outward reality. And in the examples that Jesus uses, the change here is pretty dramatic. This little seed, little tiny seed, which usually blossoms into a plant, here blossoms into a full-fledged tree so big that the birds of the air can find refuge in it. And this little pinch of yeast affects a whole lump of dough many times its size. And the effects of these things are obvious. They are plain. So I have to ask, friend, is it plain by what's observable in your life that God has changed you? Not, not by your profession, not by what you say, but by what people can observe in your life. What is observable in your life? Is it plain how God has changed you? Is it plain that God has, in fact, grown you? That you are not the man or the woman you were when you began this faith journey. The rule and the reign of God is obvious. It's observable. Now, these changes in us, they don't happen instantaneously generally, do they? Growth in holiness takes, takes place over time. It's a doctrine we call progressive sanctification. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit is always about the business of cleaning us up and making us ready to be used. So it's a little bit by bit that God is, we're his workmanship, and he's chinking away, making us who he wants us to be, right? Those things don't happen usually instantaneously, so don't be discouraged when I say, is it obvious? It may be difficult for you to know. Maybe you should ask someone who knows you well. Don't be scared. I, always, I, I wish that God would give us some time-lapse photography on this one. You know the time lapse where it doesn't look like anything's happening, but if you, if you span it out over a long time, it's like, oh, that's amazing. I think maybe some of us would say that. Like, I don't think I've made my mind. Yes, I have. See, the Lord is at work. It's, it's imperceptible. It's slow. But he is at work. I hope he's at work. And see, the thing, the reason I ask that is if he's not at work, something's wrong. If you're not growing and it's not obvious externally, something is wrong. I don't say that to be critical or, to, or to, uh, to make you panic, but to say that if you're not observably Christian, holier, then, then there's a solution for that. It's called repentance and salvation. Because God doesn't save us to keep us the way that we are. He loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay as we are. 
So if, if our experience is that we have, yes, we said yes to Jesus, but nothing has changed since then, just kind of flatlined since then, that's not the Holy Spirit's work. Nothing, so what we've got to do is just revisit that, okay? I hope that's not coming across wrong. It feels like it might be. I'm not trying to, to, to be down on anybody. I'm trying to challenge us to realize that when God is in us, when the rule and the reign of God is in us, we're moving, we're growing. And it's going to be obvious to all. That's what Jesus does, okay? That's what Jesus does. He moves us all to point perfection. This is what his kingdom is doing. It's moving us all to a place of consummation. This is all going to come together, and this is something we want to have clear in our minds. The kingdom, listen, kingdom of God is advancing to the day when it is all there will be. And right now we live with competing kingdoms. We live with a, with a devil who is the prince of the world, uh, the prince of the air. Um, we have our own little kingdoms, our selfish agenda. We, we live in we have political kingdoms. We are moving toward a place where the kingdom of God is all there's going to be. Where God is supreme. And where he has his perfect plan. This is where we're all heading, okay? To a wonderful day of redemption. When we are complete in Christ. When we will live with him forever. The Bible says the dwelling place of God will be with man. And that ought not be something that scares us. That ought to be something that we are running toward. Are we going to live with our God? Our God is going to live with us. The former things. Things that we know as pain, death, suffering. Just like, just like the, the, the bonds that kept that woman bent over, Jesus is loosing them. And he will loose them forever. These things, this suffering, this struggle, these will be unheard of in that day, okay? In that glorious kingdom, they will be eternally past. That's what we're all moving toward. This is why this kingdom stuff matters. That what has started so small has infiltrated the world. We need to believe that. That what's at work when all around seems darkness and despair is God. We need to believe that. That what seems at times to come to nothing will eventually avail. Will prevail that what is invisible to the natural eye will become joyously apparent to the eyes of faith. Father, we, we would confess in this world that we don't, we don't have a lot of appreciation for small things. We underestimate at all the time the small things in ourselves and others. In our lives, we forget the little as much when you are in it. We forget that you, God, can multiply loaves, and fishes, and anything you want. And God, we frequently believe only what our eyes can see, and we are easily then discouraged. So we ask you this morning that you might forgive our faint hearts, and that you might help us to be filled with your hope, and God, that you might Fill us with your vision for your kingdom. And God, that you would help us to see your kingdom. 
Help us to see the kingdom of God as our Lord saw it, we pray, as Jesus sees it even now for what it is and for what it one day will be. This we ask in his precious and holy name. Amen.